it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a different, a little bit of a different show. Our co-host, Andrew, is not with us today. He actually just got, he had a basketball party this weekend. No, he wasn't too drunk to join us today. He's actually driving across the country. He's somewhere between Albuquerque and Dallas right now as we speak. But I have Braden Dennis and Simone Belanger from the Canadian Investor Podcast, which is my favorite show other than mine. And they are here to talk to us about, we're going to do a little mastermind. So we're going to talk about some different companies and the boys who were kind enough to fill in today to help me offset Andrew not being here. So this should be a fun show. This is something we've not really done before. And Andrew, we do miss you. So we wish you were here, but uh, we'll try to carry on as best we can. So I guess with that, I will turn it over to Simone and we can start talking about his company and then we can kind of enjoy our chat. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having us, uh, Dave. And, uh, you know, I we have some big shoes to fill, but uh, we'll do our best here. Um, so, yeah, the company I want to talk about is ASML. So for those who are not familiar with ASML, I'm going to start and say it's probably, I would argue it's the most important company that most people have never heard of. It's not a small company either. So it's right around $250 billion market cap when U.S. dollars. Most of the figures I'll be mentioning, it's actually going to be in euros because it is based in, uh, it's a Dutch company. So it's based in the Netherlands. ASML is a semiconductor company. It's a very different company that some of the listeners might be familiar with, like an Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, or Taiwan Semiconductor, which I'll refer to to TSMC just to keep it uh, shorter. And ASML is one of a handful of companies in the world that match manufactures semiconductor lithography systems. So the process of lithography is 
quite complex. I'll try to simplify it as much as I can because I do not have a PhD in this. So I'll give an overview so people can wrap their heads around it. And by all means, Andrew, if you have questions during, just let me know. So to keep it simple, it's a system that uses light to make microscopic patterns on silicone wafers. So this is one of the crucial parts in the process of making semiconductors. The smaller these patterns are, the more powerful and power efficient the semiconductors will be. So where ASML is unique is that it's the only company in the world that produces extreme ultraviolet system. So that's short for EUV. So they also produce deep ultraviolet system, also known as DUV, which are less advanced. So there are other companies that produce DUV system, like Nikon, for example, I believe Canon too also produces them. I think that's right, right, Braden? Yeah, there's a few other players in the lithography space, especially in the DUV space, mm-hmm. but extreme ultraviolet lithography, the EUV machines, we have a bit of a natural monopoly from ASML. I've just been like lurking in the background here. Uh, Dave, again, thanks for having us. And it's funny, I'm on the other side of this and I'm like, like, I'm like nodding along because I think this is just such a brilliant company, uh, ASML is. And I, every time I look at it and I'm like, why don't I own shares again? But I digress. Yes. Uh, keep going, Simon. Yeah. And EUV systems are able to print essentially much smaller patterns on those silicone wafers compared to the UV system. So EUV system, they cost around 200 million USD and will most likely increase in recent years as ASML comes up with newer versions of those EUV system. And it has incredible pricing power because Braden just mentioned it, they have a monopoly on this EUV technology and it's unlikely to change anytime soon because it takes incredible amounts of capital to build that technology decades, honestly, to be able to get it to productions. And it also took some key investment from companies like Intel, TSMC, and Samsung's in the early 2000s. I know China, and I will touch on the Chinese factor a bit later on, but China is also investing, you know, in their own capabilities, but whether they are actually able to achieve that or not, that's another debate because even if a country or company is able to replicate the technology, finding the people who know how to develop the technology is something that's extremely difficult. And ASML has most of the talent, to be honest, even if there's some of the talent poach, they probably wouldn't have enough to be able to, to replicate that. And in 2022, about half of the cells of ASML were related to EUV system and the rest was split between DUV installation and maintenance services for their systems. So the, to show how strong the demand is at the end of 2022, they had 14.4 billion euro in backlog. Sales in both EUV and DUV system grew in the low double digits last year and was actually a Slight, not a down year because they obviously had a pretty good year, but they had some higher expenses. So it wasn't as good as previous years. And it was still a quite, quite impressive year for ASML. And they are expecting sales to grow around 25% this year when a lot of companies in the semiconductor space are actually issuing really weak guidance. Uh, you know, Intel comes to mind, but there are other companies because semiconductors are typically cyclical just because demand kind of comes and go. I personally think it will become less and less cyclical in the coming years just because there's more and more things in our lives that incorporate chips, whether, you know, the hot topic is AI. So 
AI is more and more powerful. We're seeing it with chat GPT, but you know, it requires tremendous amount of computing power and ASML, you know, has a key role to play in that. And that's because the clients too, even if it's cyclical for clients, they still have to make sure they have the technology in place when the downturn kind of stop and there's a more of a higher demand for semiconductors, because if they don't, they will fall behind. Uh, before I continue, Dave, any questions? Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Yeah, a couple of questions that kind of spring to mind. So number one, so they are a company that produces machines that allow the foundries like TSMC and others to produce the chips, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, so, so their main clients would be like a TSMC, uh, Samsung, Intel, and also China as a country does also order systems for AS- ASML, but they're only DUV system that are shipped to China because mm-hmm. of mostly US restrictions and pressure right. on, uh, on the Dutch for that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So how does, how does a company like Texas Instruments interact with them? Do they have any exposure to this company as well? 
I'm not sure. So that's a good question. I don't believe so. They may have a company with uh, like Texas Instruments would probably not need the most advanced technology uh, Mm -hmm. just because it's analog semiconductors, Uh, but they're not in their top clients. That's for sure. So that's I'm not sure that's the answer okay. to that. All right. That, and that's, that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's morally around like question of if they're like an integrated, which Texas is versus pure play designer. So yeah, their customers are the founders. The one thing that I wanted to kind of also contextualize for the listeners on this company, I know this is not my pitch, but hopefully this is, this is valuable. They are shipping about 40 of them a year in terms of quantity of these machines. They recognized 40 EUV shipments in the year of 2022, 42 the year before, 31, 26. And they were just doing one a year in 2015. So as this technology kind of became the forefront of foundry uh, technology, the EUV machine is less than a decade in terms of being widely used. Each one costs about $150 million and is a hundred over 100,000 individual parts. So they're a complete bottleneck in terms of the supply chain in and out. Like it is like in terms of the competitive landscape, the relationships they have to have with tier one, two, three suppliers to get a hundred thousand parts. It's like constructing a Boeing 747 in terms of like, the scale required here. So hopefully that's some useful context on just how massive an undertaking one EUV machine being manufactured is. Yeah. And just to, there's actually, I'm not sure, where did you get that data for the EUV systems? Because when I was looking at their most recent operate statement, they were saying they had 345 total lithography system. I know it includes DUV as well, but I couldn't find that. That's installed base. That's an installed base. In December, 2022, year end, they recognize the sale of 40 EUV units. Okay. Total lithography units recognized is 345. If you include the DUV, that may be the yeah. number you're looking yeah, at. Yeah, you know, that's what I was saying. So I was including <clears throat> both. Um, right. Yeah. Yes. So I'm looking at it sold units uh, for the year. Yeah. Yeah. 345 because there was 305 DUV units recognized. Okay. No, I, so thanks for the clarification here. So to continue here, speaking of, I touch on China a little bit, and there's obviously Taiwan and China. There are some risks associated for ASML here. So we've seen increased sanctions by the U.S. government targeting technology exports to China, like I mentioned. So there is a risk because 15% of their sales do go to China. And even though they have monopoly on EUV, they still get a good portion of their revenue from DUV systems as well, because for that, it's more of a... You know, it's not a monopoly. I would say it's a oligopoly. There's several players, but not a lot. There's less than a handful. And that 15% does not include, like I said, their most advanced EUV system. And recent restrictions by the U.S. government didn't, did not impact ASML's business since it targeted the most advanced systems and ASML was already not shipping them uh, to China. So it didn't impact. It could have an impact in the future. The U.S. has been pretty aggressive along with their allies to putting some pressure or sanctions on China for the export of knowledge when it comes to semiconductors. So we, you know, we don't know what may happen. 
The other thing, obviously, is a military conflict between China and Taiwan could have a material impact on ASML's business since their largest customer would be in peril. They would lose most of that 15%, I would argue, that goes towards China for the DUV system. And it could also impact about 50% of their business that goes to Taiwan, primarily to Taiwan semiconductors. So you could see an impact of like two thirds of their revenues here, potentially. I'm not saying that it would necessarily happen, but it is a risk. But on the flip side, the US and Western nations are pouring money into onshoring semiconductor capabilities. So the fact that they sell these systems, you could see definitely a shift if there is a military conflict between Taiwan and China and most likely the U.S. obviously as well would be involved in that. While you could see the shift of their client base kind of going towards the U.S. and those onshoring. And we've seen both TSMC and Intel making some massive investments toward opening some foundries in the U.S. recently. Any questions on that? I have a question on how you're thinking. And I think this is what kind of has kept me out of the name because I've never had a lot of certainty about projecting the next two, three years. So these numbers that I'm pulling up are, you know, we track their KPIs on stratosphere.io and their net bookings has ballooned to 30.6 billion. And that's kind of like a forward looking metric of revenue to be earned in the future, like their backlog of bookings. And this has ballooned 3x since 2020. So there was a huge surge of demand in 2021 and 2022 as these foundries are basically in a fight to get EUV machines on their premise, which is a great position for ASML to be in and, and kind of speaks to the, the moat that they have. But when you normalize it out back to around, you know, 11 billion in net bookings in 2020 all the way through 17, I'm wondering where this kind of plays out in the next five years of what normal years look like. And if you do normalize it out, the stock looks super expensive. And if they can maintain it, it looks super cheap. And so I think that that's really important. And I'm curious about how you're thinking about that. Yeah, I think it's really hard to project right now because we've seen, yeah, there's been an imbalance in demand towards that. I do think in the future, we're probably going to see maybe a bit of stabilization, but increases as well, because it's not just the U.S. that's looking to onshoring. Even in Canada, there's been talks about the Canadian government to trying to get some semiconductor capabilities, Europe as well. So you have this increased demand coming from other places. I think countries are just realizing how much of a risk for national security not having that capacity is. I really think you're going to see more and more demand and country pouring some resources into that, just like the U.S. did with their CHIPS Act that they passed in August of 2022 last year. It's a small drop in the bucket, to be clear, just because it provided $52 billion in funding for semiconductor research and development. But it just goes to show that it's probably one of the few things that the U.S. Republican and Democrats can actually agree on. It's like, you know, making sure that the U.S. is independent when it comes to semiconductors and the the China question, right? So, you know, I'll follow U.S. politics a little bit, but, you know, this is one of the few topics from the outside as a Canadian that seems to get U.S. lawmakers kind of agree on. And I get the sense that it's pretty similar for most Western nations. So I just think these things also take time. Like Braden said, there are thousands of parts that go into these systems. They also do uh, DUVs. So I think you're really going to see 
pretty good demand, at least for the next five years, if not the next decade or until there's uh, a technology that disrupts them. So that's kind of my take on that. Yeah. So I'll just finish here with uh, just a couple numbers for people to wrap their heads around. So the last thing about ASML is it's a free cash flow generating machine with its free cash flow per share pretty much going up steadily over the past five years. Last year was slightly down because of supply chain constraints and higher costs, but I don't expect this will last uh, too long since uh, they have pricing power and they are most likely going to be rolling out some newer versions of their EUV system. That will obviously be costing more money in the future. And they return over 7 billion euros to shareholders in the form of dividends and buybacks last year. And in terms of valuation, Braden did touch on that. It's not that it's hard to value. It's just it's not necessarily going to be a straight line up in terms of revenues and profitability. There's going to be a little bit of a cyclic, not as much as some of the actual companies that either produce semiconductors or design them. But typically, you'll see it trading in the 30s in terms of PE up to 40s. And then for free cash flow, you'll see it in the high 20s to 30s. So from my perspective, you know, if the PE is starting to look in the low 30s and uh, price to earnings around mid uh, and the price of free cash flow around mid 20s, it may start being a, a pretty interesting play. But it's never if you're truly just a value investor. Uh, you can just forget about this business. It's probably not going to happen. It's never going to get to like a 10 or 15 P, for example. That's just the reality, unless the, the sentiment really turns bearish on, you know, ASML for one reason or another. And if that happens, there might be some bigger problems. Yeah, that's awesome. I look so at this it. name yeah. and I think it, it's funny. It's the bull case and the bear case is both geopolitical in the fact that you touched on this, there's a, a large need from Western countries, and most importantly, the US, to have foundry capacity. And so ASML is a big part of that. And then the on the downside is that there's just so much uncertainty with TSMC. And so it's kind of bullish and bearish, depending on how you look at it with the geopolitical concerns. At the end of the day, this is technology that we cannot live without in 2023. It is so, so important. You touched on it. It's maybe the most important company that no one knows about. People in the investment community will know about it at 250 billion USD in market cap. But if you walk down the street, do you know what ASML does? I, I have a hard time believing anyone will say yes outside of, uh, outside of these circles. So. It is an incredibly important company. I think the risks are there. The valuation is obviously very stretched, but you're not going to see this company trading at basement bargain level deals. It is a natural monopoly on arguably the most important technology in, in the world. Yeah, exactly. And just to add into what Braden had said for the amount of system ships. So yeah, that's correct what he mentioned. And it's also the revenues actually slightly exceed the revenues, like 51% come from EUV system because they're obviously charging way more per system compared to the DUV and obviously compared to some of the maintenance and installation that they do, which represent a decent but not huge chunk of their revenues, about like 20%, a bit less, all of those combined. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com.
Yeah, that's awesome. It's a beast of a company. That is for sure. All right. Well, thank you. I guess I will take my stab at talking about my company. I'm not going to be as great as Simone was, but I'll do my best. So here we go. I'm going to talk about Texas Instruments. So this is... We we just all got together and decided it's semi, <laughs> Semiconductor Conductor, Tuesday today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought I would talk about an air quote more boring company. So I thought I would talk about Texas Instruments. Uh, most of us are probably familiar with Texas Instruments from those god awful calculators we all had in high school that <laughs> we all hated and nobody uses anymore. But uh, the funny thing is, is that's only about 1% of their revenue. So it's a very, very small portion of what they actually do. They have a huge, huge impact on our economy and everything that goes on in, you know, and what we build and what we use, uh, similar to ASML, but in a different way. So the company has an integral role in the economy. They design integrated circuits, uh, microchips, and other semiconductor chips. So uh, Texas Instruments has been around for a while. They've for first founded in 1930. In 1951, they became Texas Instruments, and they really kind of blossomed into what they are now in 2011 when they bought National Semiconductor, which really helped them pivot to becoming an analog semiconductor company. 2004, Rich Templeton, that name is going to come up a few times. He is the outgoing CEO, and he's really the man really responsible for taking the company in 2004 to where they are today. And he really started the the shift from being more of a leading edge semiconductor company to analog companies. So Texas Instruments, for people that aren't familiar with the history of the company a little bit, they were the forerunner of AMD, Intel, and TSMC. So uh, Morris Chang, who founded TSMC, actually worked at Texas Instruments for 30-some years, and he was passed over many, many times to be as CEO. And so the uh, Taiwan government reached out to him and asked him to help them start their own foundry there, which he did, and now is obviously you know one of the more important, if not the most important company in the world. Uh, AMD and Intel were also very leading in semiconductors. And if you are really interested in this, read the book, uh, Chip Wars. Fascinating book. Uh, fantastic. I know Simone read it yeah. and loved it. I'm about halfway through it right now, and it is utterly fascinating. So, well, um, audio book, but I feel like yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm reading it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Texas Instrument is really the granddaddy of the semi-world, and they've really kind of helped evolve what the industry is become. So Texas Instruments, kind of what uh, Braden was alluding to earlier, they're a vertically integrated company, which means that they design, sell, and manufacture analog chips. And they also make embedded processors. Now, their primary industries are focusing on automotive, industrial, and personal electronic industries, which are super exciting stuff, very sexy. Texas Instruments portfolio consists of about 80,000 projects, uh, products, which are integral to their end users' needs. So kind of cool thing about the analog chips. So we were talking about ASML and how they're really cutting edge and they really push uh, push the envelope on the design of chips and making them smaller and more powerful. And Texas Instrument is kind of the exact opposite of that. When they make a chip, the thing lasts for anywhere from seven to 10 years before it needs to be replaced. And so they have a much longer shelf life. And so those 80,000 products that they make there isn't the same pressure that ASML or TSMC or AMD would have, for example, to sell the latest chips because they know when they make these products, they're going to sit on their shelves for a while and it doesn't say, okay, you know, because they know that there's going to be need for it and it gives them a huge, huge advantage. So analog chips kind of differ from digital and that they can vary, they can handle varying uh, 
voltage load. So analog chips are used to convert and amplify signals, enable interfaces, manage and deliver power, noise cancellation, help process data, and approve signal resolution. So a lot of times these analog chips will actually be in front of the cutting edge and semiconductor chips to help all these processes so that those chips can actually function. So the modern processors that are created by NVIDIA and AMD, they may have more sex appeal, but without Texas Instruments chips, uh, the electronic devices that we take for granted wouldn't function. Most of their circuits cost 40 cents. So it's not exactly big bucks here. It's not 150 million like ASML's machines uh, and are widely used and they're strewn over circuit boards. And you can see them for airbags, x-rays, and TVs. So uh, Texas Instruments operates in three segments. Uh, they come in the analog semiconductors, embedded processing, and other. Uh, I will make a shameless plug here. Uh, stratosphere.io is the absolute best place to find information about this company. If you're looking for financial information, which I will refer to here, you got to go there. This is the place to find it. Braden and team have... have I didn't even pay Dave to say any of this. This is (laughs) incredible. It's it's amazing stuff. I mean, I'm looking at one of the charts right now. It's all weighed out, super easy to to organize and look at, and you can get a really good sense of everything that's going on with the business. So of the the three segments, really two are really the drivers. So analog semi accounts for 77% of their sales with 17% coming from the embedded processes and the balance of the other. So they have a hundred thousand customers. They uh, more than 40% of the revenue comes from clients outside the top 100. So they don't have the same concentration risk that ASML has, for example, because they have so many products and so many different customers, they aren't really exposed to that thing. And I guess another thing that I'll kind of throw out there too is geographically, only 10% of their sales comes from inside the United States. The balance of it comes from outside of the United States. One potential risk is about 60% comes from China. So there is there is some China risk, just like uh, Simone was talking about with ASML. Maybe not to the same degree because they're producing chips that, that are unlikely to be banished or forbidden forbidding China to use them, like uh, some of the more advanced stuff because this is more switches and, and things of that nature. So Texas Instruments also ships thousands of unique SKUs to each tier one supplier, even in a somewhat consolidated auto market, which is broken down into five subsectors. So Texas Instruments, I'm going to mention this a couple of times. They have these this cool capital investor day. So typically they do their, their quarterly reports. And then after that, about a week after that, they do a capital investor report. And they have different information that they share in there that they don't necessarily always share in the earnings calls. And so some of that, they will break out the different markets, their suppliers. So you can kind of get a sense of how concentrated or how not concentrated their suppliers are. So you can get an idea of kind of the moat that they've built for the company and how they can defend that moat because they have one other applied. Oh gosh, I'm going to blank on the name of the company. Shoot. Applied materials. Appl- applied materials. Thank you. There's, is their main competitor. And so that's the company that they kind of focus on trying to. To beat. So Texas Instruments boat stems from the many sources. They have primary manufacturing and distribution plus switching costs. So their entire business uh, strategy is based on offering low-cost, versatile, and long-lasting semiconductors remaining useful for decades before needing replacement by more advanced chips, which is what I was talking about earlier. All right. So the fact that the chips last a long time is important because it saves Texas Instruments money on R&D and new production facilities. 
Uh, Texas Instruments offers evergreen chips, which may be used in a variety of applications. Uh, in contrast to Intel, whose chips are produced two years ago and is already out of date. Don't get me started on Intel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's we'll a company save you I, the, the yeah, mental yeah, bandwidth. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a company I own, and I don't know why. <laughs> so uh, due to Texas Instruments' size and ownership of its factories, the company is able to produce its goods cheaper than its competitors and has greater control over the supply chain to, to serve customers. Now, that all weeds into touch here real quick on their fabs. So... Texas Instruments constructed the first 300 millimeter wafer fab for analog fabrication, uh, enhancing its low cost manufacturing process. Uh, Texas Instruments concentrates on increasing this output over the last decade and they're putting more and more money into this. The company is actually ramping up their capex and they're doing this because they're trying to accelerate their capacity. So they have more ability to produce all this stuff. So the cool thing is they have this cool chart in that investor capital day that shows how much this is dropping the cost of these chips. So from the 200 millimeter wafer that they have been using to the 300 milliliter, it drops at eight cents a a chip, which may sound like, "Eh, okay, whatever. But when you're producing hundreds of millions of these things, that's big bucks in savings. And that all translates to free cash flow. Now, this is the kind of the big kahuna, if you will, when you talk about Texas Instruments. They're all about free cash flow. And I'm going to take a moment here and look at their their latest 10K. So their latest 10K in there, they have a section on their strategy. Their strategy is to maximize free cash flow per share. And they have three elements that they're trying to focus on. The first one is their business model, which focuses on analog and embedded chips. And it gives them a lot of competitive advantages. The second one is they're trying to be very disciplined about their allocation of capital. We'll come to that here in a few minutes. They also talk about their strategy of efficiency, and that goes back to producing more of these 300 millimeter wafers, which allows them to reduce the costs so that they can pass that savings on to us as shareholders. One of the things that you'll find whenever you look at anything you're reading about Texas Instruments that comes from the company, it's all about free cash flow, free cash flow per share, free cash flow, free cash flow, free cash flow. They start every earnings call and end every earnings call talking about the importance of free cash flow to the company as well as to us as the shareholders. So it's obviously very, very focused on free cash flow. They have this huge section in their annual report that has a big section on free cash flow per share and how they calculate it as well as why it's so important to them. And it all kind of goes back to the free cash flow. So the free cash flow for the company, if I look at my friend Braden's website, we can see some cool charts here that I will throw some numbers at you. So first of all, the free cash flow per share uh, has grown to $6.47. Their free cash flow margin is 30%. They've seen 11% annual growth for the last 18 years in their free cash flow per share. And that translates to the company being able to pay huge dividends. They've grown the dividend now. It's at $4.96 a year. And they've increased the dividend 19 consecutive years, including an 8% increase in Q4 of 2022. And so that's a 21% CAGR over the last five years. They also have uh, reduced their share count by 47% since 2004. That's what and, I was waiting for, Dave. Yeah, I was like, that's, yeah. that's, when, when do we talk about how they have deleted the share count yeah, in they recent have, years? Yeah, they've almost cut it in half in 18 years. So think about that. So 
they're growing the free cash flow. So that's on an upturn. And it's not just the per share number. It's also the actual gross amount is increasing. And then you compound that with the fact that they've reduced the share count by almost half, which helps them almost double the free cash flow that they're, they're able to generate for investors. And the majority of that goes back to the dividend, which they're growing and share buybacks. And they're also able to, this also translates to them reinvesting. I talked about the CapEx earlier. They're going to grow. The free cash flow is going to see a bit of a hit over the next few years because they're increasing the CapEx to build out more capacity. So they have the ability to produce more of these wafers to produce more chips, which is going to reduce the costs of the company. That all translates to the fact that they have, they have net debt of about $6 billion right now, which means that they have more cash on the balance sheet than they do debt. When you talk about strong balance sheets, Texas Instruments has to be like the top. Maybe, maybe not Berkshire, but right up there as like one of the top examples of a company that has a granite solid balance sheet that you really want to emulate and, and look for if you're trying to study balance sheets because it is, is ridiculous. And the only debt that they do have on their books is all company debt. They don't have any commercial paper. They have no outstanding loans. So, and the interest rate that they have on the debt right now is a ridiculously low 2.53%. So they can more than cover their interest payments on whatever debt they had. So this is a, a massively, massively strong company that's been around for a really long time and they've been able to reinvent themselves. And, you know, who knows, maybe Intel can someday, but Texas Instruments, it really shows that you can really pivot and change. Yeah. I'm not real happy about the company, (laughs) but this is a company that Andrew and I both own and we're very, very bullish on the company. And unlike ASML, it does actually trade cheaper. The, the PE ratio right now is around hovering around 18%, around 18. And it, it has gotten down lower than that. So for a company that does such amazing things and has huge ROIC. ROIC, their return on invested capital is around 45%. Their returns on equity are in the 60% range. And so those are massive, massive numbers. It, it just shows that the company is able to reinvest their capital at a very high rate, leads to more growth for the business. Now, the sales growth is not sexy. It's like the company is projecting around 7% over the next five years, which isn't super exciting. But Considering how efficient they are and what great margins they have and what great turns on capital, that is more than enough to, to make this company worth, worth whatever penny you pay for it. So is it 7% per year or over total over the? Yeah, seven, 7% year. Oh, okay. That's, that's actually pretty for much a company as mature as them. That's yeah. actually nothing to, to sneeze at exactly. and love the free cash flow per share metric. That really shows yeah. that they're not trying to do any shenanigans or anything right. like that. Cause you know, net or net income, you know, you can play some little accounting tricks. Uh, <laughs> with that. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. So it, it's a strong, strong company. And the more that I learn, the more that I like. I guess a couple of the risks that I guess are a little concerning, you know, they are cyclical to us. They are to a certain extent, but I think kind of like what you were talking about with ASML, I think we're going to start to see less and less of that as the increased importance of chips becomes more and more prevalent in, in our society. The fact that they're analog, I think will, 
I think that will actually continue to be a benefit to them because they don't have the same pressures that somebody like NVIDIA has where they have to have the most cutting edge things because of the long lasting nature of what they design and what they build. There's going to be a supply and demand for them for a very long time. The China risk is something that concerns me a little bit. And the other thing that's concerning is the Rich Templeton who really has guided the ship for so long and done such an amazing job is leaving. And the, the gentleman who's stepping into his shoes, I don't know that much about. And so that, I mean, that's, you know, that can be a little disconcerting, but I guess we'll see what happens with that over time. I'm willing to give it a, a, you know, the benefit of the doubt. I think the culture is strong enough that, you know, even if he is, you know, not great, I think they can withstand it for at least a little while. Dave, when you Google compounder online, Texas instruments come up you know, first it has all the characteristics of just like the perfect compounder bro stock. They grow consistently double digits. They buy back a lot of stock. The margins are wildly impressive and no one in Silicon Valley coming out of Stanford is excited to disrupt analog chips. Um, (laughs) You know, and it's unsexiness is what makes it sexy. Mm -hmm. You look at a 10 year compound annual growth rate on a total return percentage. If you include the dividends and you, you get a 19% return for shareholders on the last 10 years. Management team, you know, talk dirty to me word is tell me you are growing the business in free cash flow per share. It is, you know, exactly kind of what you want to hear. Rich Templeton, you know, is this as close to founder CEO you can get. So I think that it's worthy to call out, you know, some maybe key man risk, but the business is so mature at, at this point that I don't think it's, too big of a concern. Yeah, not not much for me to add there really. I, it's one there that I look just at the how it screens and I'm like, this is the most beautiful company ever. Everything's clean, easy to understand. And no, it, it's a wonderful business. Yep, I agree. I will uh, round us out I wanted to go with a smaller name here because you, you guys got the couple hundred billion in market cap <laughs> names. And, you know, it's one that not many people will have looked at in the past. Uh, full disclosure, I am a shareholder. I have been for many years now. It's been a wonderful performer. And yeah, so the business I'm talking about today is called Bombardier Recreational Products, aka BRP. It is listed as ticker D-O-O-O on the NASDAQ or on the Toronto Stock Exchange as just D-O-O. So add an extra O. If you're in the US, (laughs) you can buy it on the exchange there. They design, develop, and manufacture snowmobiles, ATVs, and personal watercrafts under brands that many people are very familiar with, Skidoo, Sea-Doo, and Can-Am. Those are the three flagship. There are other brands in there as well on the boat side, and then as well as Lynx, which are like you know, racing ATVs. It is only 7 billion in market cap today. So, you know, when we're talking about size for context, you guys are talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap, widely discovered, widely analyzed, you know, many investment bank covering the name. This one will not have that level of coverage. And maybe that is an opportunity. I'm going to discuss four main thesis points on the business. I'll keep it uh, concise. The first is you have to talk about the brand name. And I never like purely owning a company based on the moat of brand, but brand is a moat and it has certainly a moat in personal recreational vehicles. 
And they have become so popular. They are now synonymous with the specific outdoor activities, especially in those Skidoo and Sea-Doo brands. It's really just unbelievable how synonymous they have become with the activity. Number two is the market share and long-term growth metrics are wildly impressive for a stock trading at 12 times earnings. They have gone from owning about 20% of the North American power sports market share to almost 35% in just the last six years alone. And so they have made massive share gains and it speaks to, you know, point number one, which is they have the brand name and the distribution, which was halted heavily in 2020. Demand was hot. I'm speaking strictly for anecdotally here. You couldn't get one two years out. That's how long people were waiting for their new snowmobiles and these new CDUs because, you know, God forbid you order another brand that wasn't going to happen. They are right now delivering their best results ever in what people are calling a weak economy. Uh, consumer discretionary spending should be pressured. And they are delivering their strongest top line sales in history by a lot, not just a little bit, by a lot. And so they've only reported their third quarter of, of their fiscal. And so we're going to get their later numbers this month, but they're guiding for really strong results. And um, I'll talk on that again in the risks. It is a cash generation machine. They are growing the dividend and they are buying back stock like no other. If you screen for companies that are buying back a lot of stock, BRP will be at the top of many of your screens because they have deleted the share count, cutting it basically in half since just 2013. And so uh, strong cash generation rewarding shareholders. And they're like, you know what? If we can deliver 20% earnings per share growth while the market you know, gives us a consumer cyclical type multiple. We'll keep buying back the shares. And so, uh, shareholders have done exceptionally well from that alone. And number four, my last thesis point is really around valuation and why I think the bear case is wrong. My thesis is that I think the consensus bear case is wrong. It is a quote unquote consumer discretionary going into a recession keeps the stock attractively valued. It trades at 12 times trailing earnings, less than that on a forward multiple. And they're guiding for around 20% earnings growth this year with their numbers coming out later in March and 27% on the top line. Not many stocks you can buy with those growth rates at this margin of safety. My thesis is that this demand stays incredibly hot. This is not a recession for people buying CDUs. You know, that's, you know, call it a, a silly anecdotal thesis, but it has worked out exceptionally. This is not a, a recession for consumer discretionary spending for those that are buying toys at their beach house and lake house. Just look up the gap in, of equality in, in North America and it is widening and widening. I do not believe this company it, it should be trading at the multiples that it has traded at historically. And I will be continue to be a great shareholder. Just looking at numbers here, I mentioned 7 billion market cap on a per share metric. They've grown the top line at over 20% earnings at over 30%. 
The dub, the dividend grows at double digits at a super, super low payout ratio. Gross margins are pretty low. I mean, this is equipment at 25%, but uh, still generating lots of cash uh, when it all flows through. Strong balance sheet, buying back lots of stock. And I think you can pay a pretty attractive price here. That was, I wasn't sure. What yeah, do you yeah. guys got? What's, I'm all yeah. years on uh, to what you think could go wrong yeah. with this idea or, or well, if you like it. Yeah, my concern, I mean, it's always been a concern for me, and so far I've been wrong, so we'll see whether I'm right or, or <laughs> wrong. But uh, yeah, like I know it's you know not the same segment of the population, but what I've been noticing over the past few months, uh, because I'm into biking, mountain biking, is that a lot of the higher-end bikes bikes that you're talking like six seven eight nine ten thousand dollars that were going like hotcakes during the pandemic i'm starting to see uh excess inventory and discounts Mm -hmm. and that was something just as recently as late last year something i you know you would not see whatsoever like if anything they were overcharging people because they knew that they could get away with it so that's definitely something that would make me a little cautious and also the higher interest rates because i was kind of browsing a few different recreation sites and all of them have you know apply for financing as well so i assume that you know financing rates are significantly higher than they were last year so those were are the two concerns that i would have personally yeah those are great points especially on like interest rates. I, I think that that's fair. It's not like buying it. One thing I'll say is it's not like buying a car. Like you can buy a, a spark CD, which is like their most popular product for around 7,000 MSRP. And so they're not like, you know, most people are just straight up buying these things in cash. Now I do think with a name like this, you know, anything really less than 10 billion in market cap you can do exceptionally well with a nuanced approach and some, and, and having a unique perspective from the market. And that's why I think that it's so attractively valued. If I call any manufacturer, any distributor in North America, and I kid you not, I, this is the type of research I like to do. I have called 50 plus in North America. And you cannot buy next year's model yet. They're still only taking. And now we are, they've already ramped up their production and they're still at that level of, of demand and backlog. So sure, it can certainly soften. And I, I no doubt there was lots of pulled forward in the recreational space. You talked about it with bikes. It's definitely happening here as well. I think that it's hot enough to push through any sort of. Uh, recessionary period that may exist. I could definitely be wrong. I've been right so far, but this is one that I'm trying to own for a long, long time anyway. So if there is weakness in the next three to five years, I'll likely still be a shareholder regardless. I guess one of the things that kind of springs to mind when you're talking about that, would a good proxy to, if you feel like that it's more of a higher end clientele that is purchasing these, maybe a decent way to track any softness would be looking at companies like American Express and LVMH and seeing if they're seeing softness of any of their purchasing or any of their their revenues activities, any of that nature, because even though they may not be using American Express cards to necessarily buy them, they're probably a lot of the same people that has an MX card versus the people that are buying them. And so that may give you some indication of, hey, there's 
they're starting to see some softness in American Express. And even though, you know, they may be that far out in orders, it could indicate that maybe farther down the road, they could have some issues with looking at that company. I'm very familiar with both those names. Living in Minnesota for 20 years, landed 10,000 lakes and 70,000 feet of snow. They're kind of popular. So um, <laughs> it's, I, I honestly didn't know until a few years ago that it was a public traded company. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, you bring up a really good comp kind of on the luxury market there with, with LVMH and, and maybe even transaction volumes on, on Amex. What I think has happened is anecdotally, it feels like it's consensus that the high end luxury market is recession proof in 2023. I think that is widely an accepted view because we're talking about a segment of the market that doesn't feel recessions. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and it and sounds they didn't, see, they didn't see it during the pandemic. Exactly. And it seems sad to point that out, but it is a reality that the extreme luxury market does not feel the same recession that 99% of people do. And I have a similarly nuanced view with some of these consumer discretionary names you know, quote unquote, heading into a recession. And so that's, again, that's my view. It's a name I've had and known for a really long time now. I've maintained that view for a long time, luckily, to do quite well on the stock. And and I think that it's more true now today than, than ever. So that's why I bring it up. You know, one of the things that I think people should take away from the discussion that we had today is, you know, Simone was talking about how he, you know, he had a different view and he had been wrong so far. There's so many different pitches that we can all take and we don't have to swing at every single pitch. And exactly. just because, you know, my company appeals to me and vice versa doesn't mean that we have to swing at every single pitch. And that to me, I think was what makes stock market so interesting is because we can all have different views on different things. We can agree on a lot of different things, but I think when we're looking at these kinds of ideas, something may appeal to somebody and, and some not to others, and some may fit sit in our wheelhouse and some don't. I could argue that uh, Texas Instruments is a little bit outside my wheelhouse, but it's something I'm trying to learn. Yeah. And even ASML was a learning curve for me. And I do own it. So I think I forgot to mention that. Uh, so full disclosure there. But I think one last thing I wanted to mention, if people notice, look, there's risks to every single company. There's no such thing as a company without risk, no matter how blue chip it is, how long it's been in business, how well it's done, whether it's a dividend aristocrat or king, there's no such thing as a risk-free company. So I think that's really important to keep in mind too. Tell that to the General Electric shareholders 50 years ago, right? (laughs) You know what I mean? It's so true. You have to be aware. If you're giving a pitch like this and you're like, there's no way I'm wrong, you definitely (laughs) are wrong. Like you definitely are. Typically the good thesis, investment thesis, you recognize where all the places you could be wrong because that means you understand it. And there's some assumptions that you're making and fully well that you know that you could be wrong. And another good point that you brought up is you can't borrow any three of ours conviction. Simone's built up conviction in ASML over what now us doing the podcast like two, three years now before you even entered the name. You and Andrew have owned Texas Instruments for quite some time and understand the business and have built in your own conviction. You cannot borrow someone else's conviction because what happens when a drawdown comes and you've borrowed that conviction instead of building it yourself, what do you do straight to the exit? And that might not be the optimal decision. Those are all fantastic points. So this has been an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed it. 
Where can anybody find more about what you guys are doing? Okay. Braden's like signaling me. I, um, so I'll go ahead and say it. So we're uh, the Canadian investor podcast. So you can just search us on your favorite podcast player, whether it's Apple, Spotify, or any other on there, you'll find us. We also have a uh, network, which has a real estate uh, podcast for anyone interesting in investing in uh, real estate. So that's the Canadian real estate investor. We're on Twitter at CDN underscore investing. I'm at, uh, Fiat underscore iceberg and Braden is Bredo. It's Bredo Capital all in one, right? At Bredo Capital. At Bredo Capital. That's it. So I think that kind of yeah <laughs> sums it up where people can find us. Awesome. Okay. Braden, you got to mention the website. Sure thing. And you can find stratosphere.io. I am one of the co-founders and current CEO of stratosphere.io. It is a free financial data terminal. So for beginner investors who might be listening to the show, you're looking for a place to get financial data to do research on stocks. There is no better place. Like, don't waste any more time on Yahoo Finance with two years and three, four quarters of data. You're shooting yourself in the foot when there is a free research terminal called stratosphere.io. You can get 10 years of data. It looks nice. It doesn't feel like it was made in the nineties because it wasn't. It wasn't. And the other nice thing about it is the UI is super fast and clean and efficient. Whereas if you go to Yahoo Finance, which I did the other day, it can take you five minutes to load the page. So there's there's some time savings as well. So guys, thank you very much for joining us today. It was awesome. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Check out their podcast if you have not already. I Seriously, this is the one I listen to every time it comes up on Mondays and Thursdays. It's the first one I listen to. They've been with me on long, long trips as well as <laughs> long, long trips on the treadmill as well. So it's it's a fantastic show and you guys will learn a ton. I know I have, and and they're also very entertaining. And also check out Braden's website, uh, Stratosphere.io. It is fantastic. I'm not just saying it because he's my friend. I really love it. I, use it. I literally use it every day. So it's fantastic. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.